Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In this, our first episode, I'm talking to the wonderful Levi Roots. Most of you will know Levi from his star turn on Dragon's Den here in the UK some 14 years ago, when he combined music with entrepreneurship in a way we'd never seen before, walking away with £50,000 for his reggae reggae source business, but most importantly, a relationship with businessman Peter Jones that's still just as strong today. What you might not know is how Levi got there, how He arrived in the UK as a child of the Windrush generation, unable to read or write, and how despite setbacks, prison sentences among them, he has been able to inspire millions. To follow this show, follow us at Starting Line Show on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and find out more about the podcast and about me at startinglinepod.com. Now, without further ado, I bring to you my conversation with Mr. Levi Roots. Levi, thank you so much for coming. Um, I've been incredibly excited about this one, just because, how old are you now, 65? I think so, yeah, around you about think? then. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped counting at 40. Did you? <laughs> You've done so much. You've lived an incredibly exciting life, I guess. Um, you came into the public consciousness 14 years ago with Dragon's Den. And you've, you've been on record, I guess, talking about your whole life. There's so much to speak about. So tell us about the, the start of your life. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Jamaica. I grew up in, in, a, in a parish called Clarendon, one of the larger parishes of Jamaica. Very hot place. Um, sugar cane, lots of sugar cane, sort of rolling hills and beautiful greenery. Uh, Every lake carries fish. Every tree carries fruit. It's one of the most beautiful places in Jamaica. Do you get back there very often? I do. I I write all my books there. I've been lucky enough to be writing a book a year, so on an average. So, um, yeah. Do you still have family 
I do. I have a large family there as well as even larger friends type family. Um, and it's always good to get back because when you are writing about Caribbean food, I think it's rightfully that you, you make it authentic and you got to go back and write it there. So I'm lucky to use it as an excuse to get back. What's your favorite food when you go back? Oh, it's going to be some of the stuff that my grandma would have been cooking, isn't it? Like ackee and saltfish, which is the national dish of Jamaica. But it's a, it's a beautiful dish, one of the most beautifully looking dish. Because the ackee is the national fruit of Jamaica. And when you make that with salted codfish, it just becomes amazing. It looks amazing as well. Well, you mentioned your grandmother there. I know she's obviously a huge part of your life. Um, and she looked after you for a good few years. Yeah, she, she played a part as all grandmas did back then. You know, they played a vital part. And as we're just coming out of the old Windrush week this, this week, it, you know, it's a time to pay tribute to the grandmas because they were the ones that were looking after the children when, you know, all the families were leaving to come to the UK um, from 1948 onwards. It was a massive job for the grandmas because, you know, my parents, as well as the other hundreds that came in that time, couldn't bring the kids with them. You know, they had to come and, work three, four jobs at a time. And, and it was always once a year, one of the kids would be sent for. And like my most families, you know, mine, mine was a big family. There were six of us. And it was a one, once a year that my parents would be able to work three, four jobs and then to send for us each at a time. And being the youngest, I was the last one to come over. That must have um, been really hard. It was difficult, but I think it's a process that was, that was all, it was adhered by everyone that was doing that building of, coming over here during the Windrush time. The youngest would never come first because they are the ones that had to come to be able to educate very quickly. To get, and into school to get a job and then start to help the family and help that process along. So being the youngest, you know, you was always one you know, last one to leave. But I spend that with time with my grandma and I, and I think, you know, the story about the sauce and being inspired by her and everything, I think um, that was the, you know, sort of her plan, I think. I, I wasn't educated when I was there. Being the youngest, again, you never went to school at all. So the only thing that I knew was what she was teaching me, which was about food and learning to sing and So music were you always in the kitchen with her? Always in the kitchen with her. Learned everything that, you know, that she could. She wasn't particularly educated herself, but she knew a lot about food and she was a great cook and she passed it all on to me. That's amazing. What was her name? Miriam. 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 And did she... Follow your parents. Did she come over to the UK as well at any point? No, no. I think that's probably one of the saddest part of my story to me personally. When I think about you know my journeys and that I I never got to see this wonderful woman who was mom, dad, the cat and the dog and everything to me, because um, I didn't really know my parents. I was too young when they left. I was about five when when they left, and I never I, I repatriated with them when I was eleven when I came over. So I spent that period, which is, I suppose, in a boy's life, that time between five and ten is a it's really so important life that you need a, a father or, or a mother and a father there to inspire you at that age. But my granny was everything, you know, she she provided the tools that my dad would have done and what my mom would have done and, and everything to be able to help me. And, and the saddest thing was I never saw her when I, you know, when I left at the age of 11, I never saw her again. She died when I was about 16 um, here, when I was already here in school. And none of us ever saw her again. So it's a sad moment for us. I'm really sorry to hear that. That's, as you say, that she's been everything to you. And then at age 11, you come here and, I mean, did you have any contact with her still? No. Um, again, in those days, in, in the sort of 70s, it, it wasn't in phone calls or anything no, like that. It was, it was writing letters yeah. and that would take a week before it got there and all that kind of stuff. 
So yeah, there wasn't much contact at all. I, I think when we heard that she passed away, it was one of these moments in, in our family history that, you know, that we'll remember forever because we had to deal with the fact that the plan was for our parents to go back. As with all the Windrush generation that came, their aim was just to come, send for the kids, educate them, and then they themselves were planning to get back to spend their last years as my, my parents. So that was their plan as well. But I, I suppose when you, you know, you came, they came to this country and started to build their family, then that plan of going back changed because now everybody wanted to create that nucleus family um, here in the UK. So my parents never went back. So again, it was the saddest moment when she passed and we, all of us never got to see her again. You said that when you came here, you couldn't read or write. How hard did you find school? as you came to the UK? I suppose was the most difficult part of that journey because it's, it's as a kid then you, you try to discover yourself, who you are and that, at that age, 11, 12. Of course, most kids have already been in the system for Absolutely. six years, seven years. Well, they've been to kindergarten and primary exactly. school and everything and been through, the, been through the system. And here I was coming in as a raw country boy that hadn't been to school. I couldn't spell my first name and that only had five letters. <laughs> so it was just really bad. I perhaps couldn't even count to 20. I, I right. just really never went to school at all. But when you put all the big foods and the big meals in front of me with the recipes and you asked me to cook jerk chicken, rice and peas, curry gold, all these massive Caribbean one-pot dishes, I was haste at these. That's at, at where, the age you, of 11 that's where you come into your own. Absolutely. And and of course, the the other angle to, to that scenario was I became a follower because I wanted to be cool. You know, I knew I struggled curriculum-wise. So when you're that age and you're in school and you're nearly 12 now and you want to be cool with the kids, you want to be doing something special. Because it's either, you know, you're good at maths and English and that and you can excel that way, or you become a sort of a jokerish type mm. person to make your friends laugh and then they'll want you, they want you around. They won't, they won't take the piss at you because you can't read or write properly because you're a cool kid. And, and I wanted to be a cool kid. So I spent a lot of my time in school trying to be that cool kid for everyone to, to like me because I knew I struggled. Were there many kids at the school as well that had come over as part of Windrush? I, I, I really can't remember, but Windrush were at that. A lot of the kids in the school were at that. But I, I can't remember anybody as, as far down the line yeah. as me, education-wise. Like yeah, it, it was. And it was Brixton as well, too. And of course, Brixton in those days was the hub, was the Caribbean hub. Mm -hmm. I, I think for South London, it was a place that many people that was coming over in those days came to Brixton because they could find family, they could find the food that they wanted. Brixton Market was absolutely fantastic. It was a way to meet friends. And so you, you come into an environment that you knew. Did it feel somewhat comfortable? But Yeah, it, it did. It was different because Very it, wasn't, different. it never had concrete, the freedom. Concrete absolutely, concrete jungle, as we <laughs> called it back then. And it never had the jumping fish and the trees with the fruits. And my first winter was one of the most terrible memories of mine because I'd never experienced winter and snow. <laughs> was there snow that first year? Absolutely. You know, and it seems like everyone always arrived in winter back in those days. It's like the planes never flew in summer. You never <laughs> arrived in a gorgeous, you know, England in the summer. And for me, that first winter, getting used to the climate and, and also getting used to other people. Where I was in Clarendon, we never experienced, you know, we didn't experience white people, for instance. Well, we didn't see white. Mm. I had a white man in my family. His name was Mr. Butler that I always grew with, but we never saw him as white. We noticed class in Jamaica. If you had more money than somebody else and that, 
you knew there was a difference and you treated people differently because of class. But it wasn't a color thing because Mr. Butler in our house was just Mr. Butler. Um, and it wasn't until when I came to the UK and I saw that racism. And if I turned left when I came out of school, there were some nice boys. You know, we call them the fashion white kids that wanted to know about Caribbean fashion, about the music and ska music and everything. And it was amazing. But when you turn bloody left, you know, these weren't the fashion kids. They were the fascist kids. And the skinheads and all that. And boy, when I learned about that, it was it's then you knew that, yeah, there is a difference here. And, and you had to find you because you had to fight. What was it like being a black kid in the 70s? Yeah, in, you started in... running at first, you know, because you didn't know what to do. You know, skinheads chasing you down and you scarper down, you try and get away. But I, I think there was a time comes when you learn to, the, I'm not going to run. You, you, you learn to fight. And, and that's when you realize now, I'm in a war zone here and you've got to look after yourself in a certain way. But I never experienced that when I was back in Jibo. It was a massive eye. Probably wasn't the most difficult thing for me to face, knowing that, you know, you can't just be you anymore. There's some people that you're going to be looking, keeping an eye out for. Did you experience any violence? Yes, many times. As I said, there's many times when I had to turn left. You know, there's some reason in school that you've got to go down these alleys where you're going to face danger for one reason or the other. Whether it's you being brave or being silly or it's just a necessity for you to go down that road. And, you know, I've had many scrapes that I've had to fight my way through. There's one particular memory I remember in Crystal Palace where I just about escaped with my life with, with the whole racism thing and that sort of stuff like that. And you learn, you learn to, to, to fight it. You know, it's not a good memory about growing up, but South London was like that in those days. Was it all fist fighting? It was fist fight. Things have changed. Things have changed. Things have changed now. I think those days, everyone was angry in certain ways. I think that influx of people, you know, that was coming in in those days. And of course, you had the signs, you know, no dogs, no Irish and that sort of stuff, which was just going out when I, when I came over. But maybe five or six years before that, those signs were still up. So your brothers will have experienced all of that? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I got the tail end of, of that harsh racism when I came over and things started to change a little bit as, as I went along in the sort of 70s. So I guess it brought with it things like Love Thy Neighbour and programmes like you know, that yeah. where it was looking at people coming over and reaction to it and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, 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 you learn not to laugh. Yeah. By the time, you know, because at first you laughed at it. But I think as time went on in the 70s and then 75, and then I left school at 76 and 78, then you start to realize that I shouldn't really be laughing at things like that. And and eventually things started to change and that sort of stuff. But those first years of coming over, it's very harsh, learning the territory. What year did you come? I came in 69. The Brixton Rights were 81. 81, so. Yeah. That's, a, that's a decade of tension. Of It, it, it was a decade of educating yourself about the system and, and knowing that you're in some kind of a prison where you live. What were the police like? Well, this is why I call it a prison because, mm. you know, it was a time of the sus laws where you didn't have to do anything apart from being black to get in trouble. And of course, I'm black, so I got in a lot of trouble. And, and you, you feel like you're in a goldfish bowl by the system, keeping an eye at you at all times. You can't give up your address because where you live determines that you know, who you are and what sort of person you are. People don't look at you as a character. They look at you because of where you live. And I, I suppose it was one of the reasons why the Brixton riot started. I was at the thick of it because I wanted to change. Uh, what was the kind of central hope for everybody involved in the Brixton riots? 
again, it was people were just saying that nobody come around here and see what's happening to us. Yeah. Um, no one hear our cry. And and when when you do that to people, all of a sudden people get angry. And and the police was having a free-for-all when it comes to arresting black kids and running through people's houses. And I think it's when it happened, I think it was Cherry Gross, her name, was one of the, the first first riots. And um, when it happened to that lady, um, police run into her house to arrest her son and, and, and literally devouring this woman. We all got angry in Brixton and we thought, it's enough, it's enough. You know, no one's going to come around and see us and see how we had, we had to do something. And so that was our answer to it. And of course, afterwards, you know, all hell broke loose. And then Lord Scarman came around and did the Scarman report because we had risen up. And that's when changes started to happen in Brixton. But we realized that you had to make a noise before anybody noticed what you were doing. But but that Scarman report, you know, really drove a nail into, into that institutional racism of the police back from then. And that's when Brixton started to change and a little bit of a tension started to... Do you think it helped across all of London as well, other other areas? Too, Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think the riots, once the Brixton riots started and people saw that it was a way to raise awareness, you know, writing letters and, you know demonstrating in a nice peaceful manner that didn't work for us as black people. You had to make a noise. And I think it's Toxteth and, you know, and all other places. Mm-hmm. And then it happened over in North London, Broadwater Farm, um, a few years after that. And people realizing that you had to make yourself known. And of course, problem. this is aligning with change in America at the same time, or at least kind of uprising in America with Martin Luther King, you know, with Malcolm X, you know, with different viewpoints on how you protest around the same sort of time did you feel that did you hear that did you think okay well that's what's happened in america you know we can we can do that here too well not really because it was a different the media would have been very different yeah and also in america the the whole thing about you know the, the the fighting for freedom was always there you know and there were so many years it was Martin Luther King Angela Davis the Soledad brothers I could name wheel of names of freedom fighters for black people and to say both black and white in America but I think here in the UK we never had that you know yeah we never had these great people you know like you know Martin Luther and that was fighting for freedom freedom over here so you find that it, it wasn't centralized in certain ways like it was in America the fight there was always centralized and you could name Malcolm X and all these great figures that was doing it and it wasn't until people like Bernie Grant and and the, the first of the MPs that you know that was in the house in the house of Commons that started to make a voice for themselves that we started to have representation within Parliament and then our voices started to be heard a little bit more but it was much different from America we used to hang on to the voices coming from America about these great freedom fighters you know that was talking you know Martin Luther King was talking of his dreams and you know we were all really but it wasn't as close to us to be able to take action as it was for for people of color in America you've been here about four years when you were arrested and charged with assaulting a police officer what was the story what happened there well, that was a riot. That was in the riot. That was in the riot. Um, I, I think I was perhaps one of the first persons to be arrested within the riots. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I, I think I thought about throwing a, a brick or something, but I got arrested before I even could even get it out of my hand. So you didn't actually assault? No, not at all. It was I, just the, they, they thought the intention was there. Yeah, I never did anything at all, but that was the charge that I was. And that took you straight to straight yeah, to youth yeah, prison. Yeah. How was that? It was a massive wake-up call for me. You know, um, 
I'd never been to prison before that. Like Pro- proper 15. prison, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, being locked up in police station and that kind of stuff. But um, having that that six month sentence mm. was 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 massive. If anything, it it mm. made me hate the system more. You would have been quite young because it would have been up to eighteen, wouldn't it? Yeah. So I, yeah, I was probably, yeah, I was probably eighteen then. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. well, you were, I think you were fifteen when you were charged, but did it take time to? No, no, no. Actually, you got something else there. I I did my first DC when I was sixteen. Oh right. Yeah. Which that that's what you said. Detention center. Yeah, detention. Yeah. I was still in school then. Yeah. yeah. I had three months. Three months in prison and. I didn't have to go to prison. It, it, my, my father didn't defend me. When I was in court, the judge would have let me off. I was going to ask how your family felt about all that. Were your brothers involved in, uh, you know, in, in trying to make change? No, no, no. Not, not to, my, brother, my brothers were pretty clean and, and well-educated and, and everything. I think I was the only one that struggled. And I What do you think that was? I was always treated as a bit of a favoritism between my grandma. Right. And, and even my mom when I came over as well, too. So I, 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 obviously being the young, and I struggled and all that kind of stuff. Not looking for excuses, but no. I did get that, that um, attention, both for my granny when I was young and for my mom. And I think that kind of pissed my brothers and sisters off a little bit. But my, my dad just couldn't handle the fact that um, I was this raw country boy that come over that didn't speak English like my brothers and sisters. And I was still very patois, very country boy, couldn't read or write. I was everything that he was against as a as a person that was very well educated, my father, you know, six foot four, amazing look and absolutely everything going for him. And here well, I was this scraggly kid from country that brought down what he classed as, brought the side down in certain wow. ways. And, and, and he, he couldn't handle it. So when I tried to be too cool with my friends at school um, and got in trouble and ended up in court, my father could have turned up in court and the judge would have let me go like he did the other guys that I was with. But my father wrote a letter telling the judge to lock me up. To try and teach you a lesson, presumably. Yeah, and, and the judge gave me three months detention center. Um, yeah, and, and that was it. And then that was the spiral. Once you're in a system, it's difficult to get out of it. Once you're in a... Yeah, yeah, and you rebel. And people have an impression of you. They think that's who you are. And it's not. And it's not. I try to tell people that's not who I am. As a matter of fact, for the rest of my life, I try to tell people I think the people same get thing. the message now. <laughs> I think people know now that you, you, you know, you're not this, this troublemaker. You're somebody, you know, is, like, I guess, single-minded. Would you describe yourself as single-minded? Yeah, I, I think so. I wanted to prove people wrong, you know, and I, I think that's been my greatest asset um, to how I've managed to stay focused is that if I have a reason to do that, and and I suppose when I when I did have my my big prison sentence, mm-hmm. and as I said, that spiral down from you get your first three month mm-hmm. sentence, but you keep doing the same thing, you're still unfocused, and everything. you go down and down. And then finally, when I had my big my big prison sentence, I was sentenced to nine years in prison. Everyone that I knew thought that there's no way I'm going to come back from that. Even I sometimes. How had a doubt. You were about thirty at that time, right? I was twenty six. Twenty six. Okay. I was twenty six. And uh, I thought to myself that the only person that believed that I can come back from that was again the angel. That was my mom. Because I even doubted myself. Because I said small sentences before, but a nine-year sentence is like a kick up the backside. You know, it's really booted up and says, this is where you're at. I decided to use that time again to make the change. And that was, was that drugs and... Um, drugs and firearms. Firearm. Yeah. So you, you had a, an unregistered weapon, you know, an unlicensed weapon. 
like how did that come about how did the police find you like you know what was the situation well, yeah there's a book written about it um yeah the, the police officer wrote a book right I bet, yeah once you become well known yeah so once you become well known yeah. yeah and do you know what i gotta tell you this for years you know I've learned that when you go into prison, because I went to a, a big man's prison. Where did you go? I went to Wandsworth, which is, you can't get no worse than that. Right. That is the, the bottom. <laughs> when, you, when you say about prison, if you don't learn there, you don't learn from anywhere. I, I started there. And I got to understand that everyone's innocent in prison. And you take your sentence like a man and you do it. And I took my sentence, not knowing how I managed to get myself in in this position. I, I never knew, but I, I accepted that this is where I, where, I, where I was. And it wasn't until many years later after Jackson's Day when I got famous in the, in the police officer that arrested me, wrote a book. And in the book, he literally said how he set me up. Really? Yeah. How did he set you up? Well, at the time, they, it was the time of the Yardie gangsters. Yes. And this is 80, in the 80s, sort of, early 80s, right up until late 80s when the Yardies were all up. And according to his book, they were trying to root out Yardies. Um, there was a special task force, which he, he was one of the head of. And they set me up as a Yardie. Now I'm going to tell you that I'm far from a Yardie. <laughs> I can't even, couldn't even remember what Jamaica looks like back then. <laughs> and they, they set me up, basically. And I never knew how or why until this book was written. And I think one of the greatest tragedies is that I was always trying to tell my mom, this is not the son that she knew of. And because I you were running a youth center. Youth center, yeah. yeah. So, so are you saying then that they, they planted yeah. the drugs and the yeah. gun? Yeah. That must have been incredibly difficult to it take. It was. And, and couldn't, and as I said, I couldn't understand how it happened or, or why. But I learned fast that you have to accept it because you do your sentence better without that kind of, you know, oh, I'm innocent and I shouldn't be here and that sort of stuff. And when I was in my 30s... That's some serious maturity for a 20s man in his 20s. But I, I, I got help. I, I did get help to, to make that change because my help came from an angel that came in the prison. Her name was, was Teresa. She was a, an intern. She came in as a sort of drama teacher. And I remember when she came into the prison, she, she found that my, everyone called me Levi and she, she felt that was a vibe, but she, she also read that my name was Keith. Mm -hmm. and, and she looked at me and she said, you're not Keith. She says, you're Levi and I'm going to turn you into the real Levi. And he was a woman that was coming in to mentor me. Um, I didn't really see it as a mentor, just somebody that I trusted at the time. Was it difficult to trust people? It was. Um, because when I went in, I went in as Levi Roots, the singer, the sound man, the performer that, you know, that knew his way around the stage and knew how to make people smile and make people happy. And um, so I kind of knew that I had some kind of powers in me as a performer and how to, to make people feel happy with your music. But I couldn't, I didn't use it in the right way. But Teresa taught me how to use that and how to turn my life around from this person that went in. That is always in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was trying to prove other people that he's, he, you know, he's something when you shouldn't need. To. So funny you say that, Levi. My my motivation, I've really had to boil it down. It's there's almost there is an anger and there is a I need to prove to you that I'm somebody different to the person you think I am. And that's it's an incredibly powerful driver. But the thing that I, you know, I'm 35 now. I hope that that anger dissipates. I hope does it ever? It it did because she gave me a reason to to forget it. You know. She she says she says that I should 
identify with who you are as a person inside. Find who you are, the best of you. Nobody else needs to see it, but you have to react that way, that everything you do is the best decision that you can make for that moment. And I got to understand, because I used to always play the fiddle for other people. Tell me about Teresa. How old was she? Was, was she? Well, I was in my I was in my late twenties when I met her. Yeah. Because um, I was twenty six when I went in, and I think maybe after about three years or so, she was in her sort of fifties at the time. She's a, a New Zealander, um, fantastic, much about four foot tall. <laughs> but she believed in me. She really believed in me, and I, I formed a band when I was inside of prison. It was so brilliant that we toured. <laughs> We toured. I was. I, I wrote the prison magazine. I invited all sorts of people to come into the prison. I was touring my band in other, even women's prisons. We used to so tour they allowed, with the band. So you, having set this up, the, the prison that this the prison service yeah. allowed you gave to- me a free run of the old prison. I had my guitar in my cell. I was one of the only person that had that. The governor gave me a free run. After a while, I was given the job of um, working in a crash. I was on an island on the Isle of Sheppey, um, the prison on the Isle of Sheppey, and I was given this job to work in a crash with 20, 20 odd children, all under six in this crash. So you were given a lot of trust. A lot I mean, of you trust. earned a lot of trust. Absolutely. I think the music and the touring within the prison and having everybody, literally everyone in the prison, knew of my sound system days. I mean, there's a lot of black people were in the prison at the time. So I was kind of held up as some sort of a musical. Do you still keep in touch with anybody from prison or do you still... I when do. was the last time you saw Teresa? I spoke about Teresa on a, on a program, on a BBC radio program about five years ago. And someone was listening to that program. Like, we tried to find her. You know, as I said, I gave her responsible for changing my own life. And we couldn't find her until I was on this BBC radio program and I spoke about her. And someone was listening to the program and contacted Teresa in New Zealand. Because she had gone back to New Zealand, you know, 20 odd years, nearly 30 years ago. And I, they, they, someone passed her number on to me, that same person. And I called her and it was the most amazing that conversation. That must have been one hell of a heaven. call. <laughs> and I, I told her, I said to her, Teresa, your, our life has been made into a movie. And she nearly fell out. I said, Dame Judy Dench is going to play. Because <laughs> I'd just spoken to Dame Judy Dench a few weeks before that about my movie. And she'd agreed that, you know, when we get the script together, she'd be willing to play the part of, of Teresa. What did Teresa say? She, as I said, she needed to drop the phone because she couldn't believe that she was hearing from me after all this time. And I told she her she must I was, have known. She must have seen that you'd become somebody. You'd well, become yeah, successful. She, I don't think she knew of the inspiration that she'd given me to change my life completely. How wonderful that somebody could do that and not know. And not know. Yeah, yeah. That's the innocence what, of, of what a of, special what person. It was. I, it, it was just an innocent sort of connection between both of us that for two years in this prison, this woman mentored me. She'd write, write to me. We had anonymous names for each other that she could write to me and send me notes. She would send me books. And she, the first book she ever gave me, she said to me, here's this book, read this old thing, and then we'll talk about it. It was the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> did you read much? Did, I read all of it. You read all of it? I read all of it, and now I could quote Shakespeare from now till, till tomorrow. Because she was saying to me that when you get out, you're going to be the best Levi Ruth that you can ever be. And anyone that you meet to speak to, you will be able to have a conversation with them. And that's why she was giving me Nietzsche. She was giving me Shakespeare. She was giving me Khalil Gibran. She was giving me all these great philosophers' books to read to educate me that once I'm out, 
you know, it will be the new Levi. And, and I think that's what people experienced when I came out. I wonder what, her, like, did you, did you get a sense of what her motivation was beyond just being a good person? I think, I think we just got on. Because as I said, she, there's many of us hundreds in, within the prison in, in, in Isle of Sheppey. And she would be there every two weeks. She would have three or four classes. I don't think she, she had that relationship with anyone. Again, maybe it was because of the music and I was doing so much, you know, writing the magazine, doing the tours of prisons, writing to Princess Anne to come to the prison. Now, Gary, what's his name? The bodybuilder. I would write to him when he would come in and put on shows. I would be just like writing to everybody with these letters. Uh, Gary something. He used to be in Wandsworth Prison because that's where I'd met him. He so was he, the gym was teacher. In, he was in, oh, he was a no, gym he was a gym teacher. Right. Wandsworth, and then when I'm on the Isle of Sheppey, I wrote to him and asked him to come and put on a performance at the Isle of Sheppey. And he came with all his bodybuilding mates and everything. And, no and Gary, Gary Taylor. Gary Taylor. He came and, and did a performance with all his massive bodybuilding guys. So I would be writing to all these people and they'll be coming into the prison. We'd so go with just the band. Really driven, really keen to, to, I guess, get the best out of the experience because it is what it is, right? You know, you're, you're in there. It's, it's to, to make um, how long did you serve of the nine? I, I got nine and I served nearly five, four, four years, eight months. You said earlier on that you did keep in touch with some of the people you met in there. Like, are they good friends still? Yeah, absolutely great friends. One of the one of the guys I got to mention his name is Frank Scully. He was part of the band when I was in when I was inside. You know, he was the percussionist um, that I put together. And many many years later, when I thought of the sound clash thing. Because music and business is my thing, but theatre is not. And Frank had used the time with Teresa to come out and actually get into theatre. So when I thought of, when I wrote Sound Clash, you know, Frank was the first person that I called and says, look, Frank, you know, I've got a great business idea. I want you on board. And, and I got Frank on board and it's, it's Frank and I are, that are doing the Sound Clash. That's incredible. I've got so many questions about Sound Clash, but I feel it's only right to start back. You started Matic 16. Yeah. How old were you then? Oh, Matic 16, I was eight, I was 17, 18, yeah, about 18 at the time. I was walking down the, the, the road of Brixton and I saw the great Sir Coxon sound system and um, Lloydie Coxon, the owner, um, just heard me rapping and as I was going along down the road. I said, hey, young man, come over here. <laughs> and I went over and I kept rapping and, and he asked me to join the sound system, recorded my first track. I called myself Levi Roots then because I, I dropped the name Keith Graham. Because I found out that 90% of Jamaicans have Scottish names. And I used to look in the mirror and think, I don't look fucking Scottish. <laughs> you know, something is happening here. What's Keith Graham doing here? You know, get that fuck out of here. And bring in a name that I felt comfortable with. And so I changed the, 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 my name from Keith Graham. Had you kind of found your way to Rastafarianism at this yeah, point? It was, it was through that. Because it was through Rastas that I, Rastafarian that I named myself. I was just about starting to twist up my head at the time and wanted to get into music. So I wanted a cool name. And I thought, Keith is not good enough. <laughs> Hey, listen, Keith's, Keith's a good name. Keith's it's a good, good name. name. I, I, I didn't want to be quite, I mean, I wanted to feel in my skin because your name is really important to you, you know, your name. And, and I didn't feel like a Keith. I wanted something that I felt in tune with. And Rastafari was then, was, Bob Marley was doing a lot of music and everybody was twisting up their head at the time and Rasta was being the thing. So I chose Levi from the Rastafari calendar, which is, Levi is the month of June. So I, I took on my own month and said, I, I want to I wanna be Levi. And Roots, because I want to be strong like the tree. So I married that, those two together and came up with Levi Roots. And then I dropped that after my first recording of Poor Man's, Poor Man's Story. That was my first song with Lloydie Coxon. 
And I, I wanted to do more than just be a rapper and a DJ. I wanted to sing and play and, and all that. Because Teresa had said to me, you have to be the full. Anything that you do would be the full of that. So I wanted to form a band and, and to be playing proper music as opposed to just lyrical on there. So I formed Matic 16 and we recorded our first song, Jehovah, and it was a massive, massive hit for us. Big hit in Jamaica, big hit here? Big hit here, big hit in Jamaica. Yeah, fantastic. Laid, laid us out on the map. Where did music away. take you? Because I think, obviously, we see you as musical. Like, you know, I think a lot of people that you know, know bits about you would know that you're musical, but maybe they didn't know that you started a band that was... I mean, you, you won a MOBO for Best Reggae Act in 1998. Yeah, yeah and, and that, I, well, I didn't actually win it. I was nominated. Oh, you were nominated? Yeah, nominated, yeah. But that, that still is my biggest claim to fame musically because... Back then, mobile was a thing where it was the fans that 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 um that chose you as as the best, and to be chosen by the fan as as one of the best performers, you know, in in, in with reggae music in the country, you know, and that still makes me smile whenever. I, 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 so where did music take you? Because I've read that you performed with James Brown, that you know, with with Bob Marley, you know, what? Do, like, tell us about some of that. Yeah, I think all, all that kind of stuff is very inspirational, you know, working with James and, and everything. But I, I think where the music has got me is walking down the street of Brixton one day in 94, going up to see my mom and she said to me, oh, are you, go- are you going to see the man? And I'm thinking, who the hell are you talking about? Who is the man? And she says, oh, the man is down in Brixton. So I, I said, oh, I'm going to go and see the man. So I stepped out of the house and I, I saw the, the thousands of people walking down Acre Lane going towards the Brixton Recreation Center. And everyone is singing Mandela, Mandela, Mandela and Prince Charles in Brixton. And I followed the crowd all the way down. Everyone knew me, obviously, as Levi Roos. When we got there, Mandela's coming down the staircase. The plan was to hand in his birthday cake because it was his birthday and it was with Prince Charles. And I'm standing there with the rest of the thousands, just like a normal person. And one of the, um, the security guards spotted me in the crowd because they wanted to form a, a group of people to sing happy birthday to Nelson Mandela. And um, the security guard, he saw me and said, hey, there's Levi Roots in the crowd. You bring him up. He'll sing happy birthday. <laughs> and, and the crowd kind of crowd surfed me halfway, feeling me up and all that. Oh, and, and landed me in the Brixton Recreation Center. And I was quickly given the, the birthday cake. And as Mandela is sort of gliding down the stairs, like he was floating, like on wings to me anyway, he's coming down the escal- escalator with Prince Charles. And he's, he's come to the bottom of the, the bloody cake and singing happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> Can you get any cooler than that? So if that's where the music has got me to be what, able to do that. That makes me think about what a long way, what, what, what kind of what a distance there was between the Brixton that you moved to at 11 and the Brixton in 1994 where Mandela's there, thousands of people, and you're there singing happy birthday, Mr. President. But what, you know, in, in what was that? So 1969, 25 years, how much change can happen? And you were at the center of that change. There's a lot of people that won't necessarily know that story. And I know you've told it in in various ways, but it's super inspirational in in and of itself already. And I think the fact that you, you just said that I just had to be positive about the sentence, you know, it, you know, there's, there's no, you know, what are you going to be, are you going to stay angry? Are you going to stay? Well, no, you, you can't stay angry because that's been my savior that I didn't stay angry. Because it's because I, 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 I accepted my fate and, and what it brought for me. Because now, I, I say to kids now that there's no such thing as mistakes. You know, mistakes, I've rebranded mistakes and call it feedback. <laughs> because I, I would never chant down on my journey. 
you know, even though I said I was set up by the police and all this thing, and I went to prison for the wrong reason, I was an idiot when I was when I was younger. But I still say my journey is what's got me here right now. To be this person that, you know, when I went back to Jamaica recently and you're not supposed to be known in Jamaica when you're left as young as me and you come to UK, <laughs> nobody except you as a Jamaican. You're an Englishman and a traitor when you get back. And, and recently I went back a couple of years ago and I'm driving through the toll road going back to my local Clarendon from Kingston. And when I got through to the toll, there's a lady sitting that collects your money so you go through. And I gave her my, my $100 when I was going through. And she, she looked down from an eye from where she was and she saw me in the car. And she says, hey, hang on there. You're the pepper man from England, aren't you? <laughs> and it was just so great. And when she said that, I drove off but just feeling yes. Because you don't get that recognition from someone like a person in a toll booth that don't watch TV, don't anything. But if you are known in Jamaica, you know, for being something good, and, you know, and that was an inspirational moment. It was something that was, I'll never forget, the pepper man from England. I just was thinking that's great. Did your dad ever see, did, did he change his mind? Did he ever see your successes? He saw it, yes, of course. You know, um, my dad moved back to Jamaica um, when I was about 19. Mm-hmm. And he never came back. Did your mum move over with him? My mum, no, my mum stayed here with her, with family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she never, she never went back. So did they, did they split? They divorced and everything. My father went back and my mum stayed with the family here. And of course, my dad heard about all my fame. You know, I, I, I used to hear the stories of how, you know, people used to go and tell him and that sort of stuff. But I was always angry, you know, in, in that sort of way. Um, did you speak to him? No, because I, I used it to drive me on. So if I didn't have him in the way that he was, I probably would have been lazy about me wanting to be successful and didn't have a purpose or a reason to, to drive me on. So again, when I say that there's no such things as mistakes and your frailties and your boo-boos and everything that you've made in life, I think it's time that you, you, you grab them and hone them, you know, and use them to better your life and to better others. Because it was because I grabbed them now why I can say I do, you know, sometimes two schools a day, spoken twice at the Oxford debate and done all this kind of stuff that I've done over, over the years was because I, I had something to focus on to be able to stay focused. Do you think he ever felt a pride in you? Of course he felt pride. Absolutely. But you don't know that. Yeah. Well, I, I know that because I hear the stories back from, you know, from people telling me. And he's in is he? Well, he passed away a couple of years ago. But I, I used to hear the story as how proud he was, he, he, he was of myself. And, and people would tell me, tell me that. I, I thought that if I, if I had reached out to him, I thought I would have lo- lose that, that power that I've got. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
but to drive me on to keep going and to be to be successful. Yeah. You got to be able to see through the darkness. I believe you, you know? have to. You, you got you got to see that. And and as I said, when you have a purpose, that's your sight to see through darkness. Because your purpose, nobody else can't see it. You, it drives you on though. So you've come out of prison, and you know Teresa's been this incredible guiding light, and you've come out. What is your purpose at that point? You are Levi Roots, the musician. You are Levi Roots, the, the new man. You found that within yourself. What's, what's your purpose? My purpose was then to just start to action these ideas that Teresa had said to me. And I, I wanted to start a business. I, I, I was now thinking differently. I, I had came out with this idea to merge music and food together. I didn't want to do just the music thing anymore. I wanted to bring my grandmother's recipes and put that together with the music. It took me quite a few years because nobody would accept <laughs> wouldn't accept it after the yeah absolutely but nobody would accept it you know and, and I, I sold the sauces with my kids for a long time trying to say to people that this Heading is a to great the idea and, and everybody was saying no you know sell us your music but don't try to sell us the bloody sauce <laughs> was it called reggae reggae sauce then no what was it called no it didn't really have a name it was I was just it was just mine. a Caribbean sauce I, I, I was selling it. And, uh, Will you yeah. sell it in Brixton? I was, and that's where the biggest rejection came. Because I guess it's a Caribbean. Like, yeah, we know, yeah, we know yeah, how to make absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, and the thing is that I realized is that nobody has a right to a market. You know, I, I thought it was a great market. When we did it with my kids at first, we thought, great, you know, we brought, you know, 3,000 bottles and thinking that's going to be great. We live in a Caribbean area, so much Caribbean places around. It's going to be, it's going to sell like at fire. Nobody brought it, you know. We we were lumbered with those bottles um, of sorts. Did you have to take a loan or something to... No, what we decided to do, we decided that we're not going to sell the sauce locally. I remember my son Zion throwing a, a, a dart at a map that we had in, in the flat and it landed in Carmarthenshire. And I had made the decision that we're not going to... I was so angry with my local people. We decided that I'm not going to sell the sauce anywhere if it doesn't have Shire at the end of it. That was the decision <laughs> that we made. That was us saying that we're going to go to the country markets and these lovely country fairs where there isn't another Levi Roots. There isn't anybody with a guitar selling Caribbean sauces there. So it would be totally new if we went into the Shires. So for three years, it was just the Shires. I never sold the sauce locally. But it was booming whenever I went to, you know, Lincolnshire, wherever there was a nice country market where there's nobody looking like me. I was the only dreadlocks Rasta man I'm with a guitar singing a song. The sauce sold out amazingly, amazingly. And it was while I was at one of these events that I, I was spotted by a producer from Dragon's Lane. Do you Lane. remember where you were? I was at the Royal Food Market in the Excel Centre in London. It was a, a sort of country, country market food fair that was being held there. So everybody that was doing sauces and other country type food um, was there. And was, I was there normally. I would get the guitar out and start singing. And um, Did you know that you were creating a brand at the time? To be honest, I, we, I didn't really see that because if I did, I probably would have packaged it differently um, in those sort of three years before I actually gave it the name. Otherwise, I probably would have given it the name. But it was a light bulb moment when I decided to, to give it the name regularly. It was just, we were trying to get to the carnival in 2006 um, to launch it then at the carnival. And we thought that, oh, we've done it three years without any name. Let me now, you know, finish this song that I, I only had the first verse with it while we were doing all the tours in the Shire. And I thought, let me finish the, 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 the song and then try to give it a proper marketed for the carnival in 2006. 
So that's really when we named it for the first time um, and put a label on it in 2006. That was only a year before Dragon's Den. Yeah, yeah. Carnival was August that year mm-hmm. and I was, I was spotted just after. And then by Christmas, I was in Jagger. Yeah, it was being filmed. Yeah. So somebody spotted you and they thought, that's a fantastic pitch. That's some, you know, somebody we need to bring into the den. And that's where you probably became the Levi Roots that most people know because you were very different from anybody else that we'd see on that show. I remember seeing you, so I would have been, what, like 20? You, you know, you were just very different to the the people that came onto the show and you came up the stairs singing. When was the last time you sang the song? Every day. You sing it every day? Every day. Because I I do, as I says, sometimes two, three schools a day. Yeah. And they all want to hear the song. But everyone is so captivated by it. You know, that, that's what it wants. That's, that's the, what they remember. You know, mm-hmm. for people that watches any kind of that, those kind of TV shows, mm-hmm. they will always say that they remember that moment when I was at was Music at, has a dead. brilliant, beautiful power of helping us both, you know, remember things. You, you must have it where you, you hear a song and you can just feel that memory. You know, what you did is you recognize it through music. You can unite these things, not just food, but business too. And I mean, you captivated the, the dragons, didn't you? I, I saw side profile of Theo just absolutely loving it, thinking, geez, what, you know, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. how did you find the process? Well, I nearly never did it because you got to remember that nobody wanted me to sing the song because nobody had ever seen anyone sing, sing the song. So the people that I'd went around to, to tell them that, mm-hmm. I've been, you know, asked the dragons then to go on and I'm going on next week. Mm-hmm. I had a week before and I was spotted to when I had to go and do a screen test for the BBC. Because I think they wanted to hear the full song to see that there's no sort of swear words. So <laughs> I must be the only one that ever had a screen test for Dragon's Day. Because they really wanted to hear. Because I said that I'm not going on without singing the song. So they thought, I'll come in and we'll hear the full song and then we'll do it. But I, I used that week to go around to all my friends to, to see if I can get anybody to say that, yes, Levi, sing the song. Everyone said no. Don't, don't, well, because the, nobody had ever sung before. And I think they were a bit worried for me that if I, if I'd gone and break the mold of being this serious businessman, the Dragon's Den was really serious in those days. Know. You know, you go up there and the Dragon's devoured you if you, if you didn't get your numbers right and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I knew that numbers was a problem for me, but so I wanted to be me. I wanted the music. Everybody said, don't sing Levi, you know, don't take the guitar, don't break the mold. If you're going, go like everybody else and do it. You know, I decided I wanted to be me. I, 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 Teresa's words were ringing in my head. You are better as you. You are, you can be perfect you, but when you pretend to be somebody else, you can't be any good. So be you no matter what that is. And I decided to, to go with the guitar. And I think that, that's, that is history. Changed the course of reggae, reggae source at, at the very least and possibly your life. But, um, so we, Richard Farley and Peter Jones in the room said that they were investing. But I've had clients that have been on, on the den that after the fact said, actually, the investment didn't happen because another investor came in and offered me the same or more for less equity. But it did happen for you, right? Peter Jones did invest. Did Richard Farley invest yeah. as well? Yeah. So, so that did happen. That was the 50,000. Yeah. What did you say you needed the money for? Yeah, it really, it was to start a kitchen. It was to start small with the kids, you know, as, as you do You've in, in business. you seven kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. Eight now. Eight now. Were they all helping out at the time? Yeah, all seven of them were helping out at the time. And what are their ages? Yeah, um, my youngest back then was in 27, and the oldest was 36 or something like that. Yeah, How old were you? Diff- different months. I had all seven when I went to prison in 1986. 
So I was 27 then, 26, 27, and I, I already had all, all them kids. So it even made it worse when I had my sentence, knowing that I had seven children. Did they come um, to visit you? I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and again, that kept me alive and gave me a reason and a purpose to, to wanting to come out and do better and not mope about the sentence and that I didn't do it and all that kind of stuff. I settled down for them, really, and, and came out a, a, a new man. But it was the help from them that helped me to actually build the source and make it at home because I was a single parent back then, back then with the kids. It was it was that four years, four and a half years of being without them. That was the most difficult so thing. But we made up for that when I did come out and started the source because we did it together, you know, as a family, we, we, you know, as a, as a unit. And that was that was absolutely fantastic. And there's been another one since. Yeah, Christopher. Yeah, he's oh, on, he's only ten now. He's yeah. ten. He's ten. Oh, yeah, so he's the oh, tiny, tiny. Baby. How did you find yeah. being a dad um, in your fifties? Like you know, starting the. Yeah, well, yeah. I've got to be honest. I've always liked to be. I think I was a, probably a rubbish dad, you know, before. I wasn't that good because I went with the time. I never had a proper job to be able to look after them. So I, I, I wasn't a good dad to, you know, to, to seven of the kids. But I, I think since Christopher's been born and having a relationship with, you know, my, my new love, Martina, and we formed that family unit, I think I'm the best bloody dad that there ever could. <laughs> because I've, like I said about mistakes, that there are such things as mistakes. You know, it's about feedback. I, I learned the feedback of how to be a proper dad. And, and now, if you see Christopher and I, you would think that, my God, these two are brothers or something like that. Because I know now, you know, how, how to be that. So, yeah, I'm proud of uh, being a dad now, but not proud of, of how I, I was before. I guess, as you say, it's just a learning process. Yeah. You know, you're working yourself out still at the time. You know, you're, you're a young man. I had my first when I was 18. Um, oh, yeah. And you don't know who you are yet. And that was younger than me. My first was when I was 19. And it changes the course of your life instantly. It does. And you've got to work it out. Yeah. And especially in those days, like I said, in the way we lived back then in, in our local, it was really difficult. Um, but there was no excuse in, in that kind of way. Because maybe if I didn't, if I could have focused, maybe things would have turned out. There's no perfect way either. I think yeah. I, my oldest, so she's almost 17 and you know, she's brilliant. But, you know, I just think sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know where to go right and where to go left and, you know, how to. Yeah, sometimes life, you just have to let life lead you. Yeah, and hopefully it, it drops you. Be positive and optimistic and hope for the best in all these things. But no, thank you. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's so, I mean, that, that's a lot for you. That's a lot of children. And, um, but you have a great relationship with them all now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not all. Again, you know, fame as a way of doing what um, Shakespeare had said about the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And I think what he was talking about then, slings and arrows, is things like in modern terms is the press and the problems that you get when you work yourself up and you manage to focus and, 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 and have some kind of quality of life. Then the arrows start coming in. And for me, that had happened just after the den when I thought that, you know, I was, I was the most famous black man in the country that didn't kick a ball or run fast um, because my thing was about business and enterprise. And it was just brilliant to see someone from my community in that space being given the, the room on TV and on radio as, as what I did. And just when I thought that everything was the most amazing with it, I, I got sued by a couple of mates um, and I ended up in court. Everyone thought that, you know, the source is going to be, you know, because he has Levi fighting with his mates and, and, and that sort of stuff like that. 
So it was a time for me which very, very difficult. Um, just three years after the Dragons then. The, the, the newspapers came out against me. As again, they couldn't believe that a black Rasta man was getting this enough fame and the sauce was outselling Heinz tomato ketchup, you know. <laughs> Is that true? Absolutely true. Absolutely. That's I incredible. had the phone call from Justin King, the chief of Sainsbury's, to break the news that reggae reggae sauce is outselling. I believe I did not know the man's number one them. selling sauce in the whole country. And so I think they were, it put a lot of people back up. And, and, you know, the press started to get to my kids. Before I knew it, you know, a couple of my kids had come out against me. They had given them loads of money and, you know, give them makeovers. And I, I picked up the paper one day and I saw my two daughters made up, you know, splattered all over the newspaper and telling what a horrible dad I am and, and that sort of stuff. Out of everything, even my prison sentence, it was the worst thing that had happened to me. To, to see your kids coming out in that way, led by the same similar entity to what led me to prison, as I said, about being set up and all that, and now seeing the press paying my children to, 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 to talk against me. It, it, it was, it's, it's unpalatable. What I've always hated, I guess, again, I work in and around the media, you know, I have done for 15 years with clients and we try and use it favorably. What I've always found with the press, they'll build you up. If you're an underdog, they love you. And then the second you're successful, you are a target. And it's, it's, Desperately sad that then they would they will use your children. They will use anything to, to because because all of a sudden you're Levi Roots. People know your face. People know your name. They associate you with success. I mean, did it did all of your past the the prison and, and all that? I mean, I presumably that all came. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was vitriol. Um, yeah, and, you know, it, they all made it out to be as if like I'm the worst person in the world. But I, I tell you, the magical thing about it. People that were buying the sauce didn't give a shit. <laughs> See, that's because you built a brand. What you've done, so yeah. I, I say to people all the time, they're like, oh, won't this harm us? It's like, it's, if the product is great, if the, yeah, it's, it's incredibly unlikely that, you know, that that's going to damage sales because does the person on the street know? I mean, we, we just did some work. Um, I don't know how much you know about AI and, you know, artificial intelligence and how that, how quickly that's all moving. I won't bore you with it, but everybody in the media is talking about AI. Everybody in, you know, industries, professions are talking about AI. If you ask my mum, I guarantee you she can't name one AI tool. And that's, a, that's the person on the street, you know. So, you know, that's the person who's buying reggae reggae sauce. And luckily these people, you know, these, these things don't get to everybody's ears. They don't, I'm sorry to hear that. That, that must have, as you say. You know, those, those things that come as stealth because they don't come to hurt anyone else but you. And it does the job because it bloody hurt me at the time. You know, I said it was stripping me apart knowing that my kids aren't bloody... The Daily Mail, you know, explode out all over it. Were you able to talk to them afterwards? It was difficult. You know, it, it really was difficult because that sort of things happen. You're hoping that the kids will one day see, because they were adults by then, obviously. But I think the temptations of how these people, you know, goad you in was a bit powerful for them as kids because to me, they are still kids. How old they my kids. They were in their 20s, their late 20s. Yeah, two, both of them. Yeah, and, and yes, it was the most hurtful part in, in my life. If there's anything, as I says, that really got to me, the sentence didn't, you know, the setting up by the cops and all that kind of, Like I says, mistakes is feedback. Because without all those things, I would be the Levi Rose if I didn't go to prison to meet Teresa, to change my life. You once said that prison was inevitable for you. Yeah. Because the spiral, and it happens to kids now, kids in, in my local Brixton and the other areas. It happens, you start with petty crime, and if somebody doesn't come in, like a Peter Jones, like what happened to me, 
And by the way, no one like a Peter is going to come through Brixton and these <laughs> Tuxteth and these other areas, Huddersfield and these places that I've been to and see these kids who are struggling, both black and white. No one's going to come around and point at you and say, I can help you. So you see them start small, but then it's a bit like, you know, you talk about yourself as well too. You, you, you spiral right down until you, until you get there. There were, there were times I was arrested with my family. I've done nothing wrong, but because I was, I was one of five. If something had happened in the house, and we, we lived in a really, it was a weird area. We were the only council house there. So all of a sudden, everybody, you know, we're like the scum family. Mm-hmm. But there is that well, guilty by association. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, why are you, you know, chucking cuffs on me? For what reason? You can see how people feel angry about that. You can see how, as you say, that spiral where you get to a point where you're like, actually, I'm going to rebel against this. You know, if that's what you think of me, then I'll show you. And, you, you know, it sounds like you're speaking to a lot of children, a lot of kids, a lot of people that have been through similar situations. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I think the only way for them to help me through that is I had some really good people around me, you know, in that time. I think it was t- 2013 when, when that happened um, with the kids and stuff. I had some really good people around me. So that's me. seven years after Dragon's Den. That's seven years after fame. That's Yeah, as I said, it was three. It started three years after because I said the court case took about a year and a half mm. almost two years to, to come to fruition. But I think that the good thing was that people like Peter and the company AB World Foods, which is the second biggest company in the bloody world, was doing Levi Root Sauce. <laughs> um, I, I was so lucky to have these people on board that believed in the brand. And when the court case came, you know, they stuck with me. Because I think if Pete, Peter could have said, sorry, Levi, may I didn't really come into this for this, you know, sorry, yeah. I, you know, bye-bye, see you later. But no, he, he stuck. He stuck with it. Was I mean, Richard Farley still involved at that point? No, I brought my shares back from Richard by by then, um, which was a brilliant bit of cool by well us to be able to do that. Peter <laughs> <laughs> so was the one that made the call to Sainsbury's to get it stocked exclusively, wasn't he? Not six hundred plus stores, yeah, which yeah. all of a sudden you're front and center, looking. You know, the, the bottle looked different to, to anything else that, that existed at the time. So the branding there was was phenomenal. Um, do you still speak to Peter a lot now? Yeah, we're still very close. Um, and that says you always need somebody that knows more than you. Um, I don't see the day when I'll ever want Peter out. We've become much more than just business partners, you know, really good friends. And it's inspiring to have someone that, that's, you know, in business, you can't really get any better. You know, mm-hmm. you talk about business people in this country, you call Alan Sugar, you call Peter Jones, and, and that's it really. To, when people talk about big names, and to have someone like him in my corner, you know, and I'm, I class myself still as a dreadlocks rasterman from Brixton. You know, I, I don't come out of that mode to myself. Isn't it funny how you talked about class earlier on? I said to my kids the other day that I felt working class still. And they're like, no, you're not. I'm like, yep, you can't tell me what I am, but you still, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, you, you feel like you're that thing still. And you're like, you know, even though the house might be nicer or the car might be nicer, it's like, that's nothing. Well, because it is it, to the, it's the people that you feel answerable to that what makes you who you are and i feel answerable to still these people in brixton and these local kids who i who i see and who i who i identify with you know and and the reasons why i said going to these prisons i do a prison a month every month i go into a prison and when i go in you know the prisoners will tell you no matter who they invite in the only people that they want to see is 
is, is someone like me that can identify with them. Because I've been there. When I talk to prisoners, they listen. Because I'm not like some suited and booted guy who's coming in trying to tell them to stay focused. And yet, I, you know, I, I live a different life. I can tell them that. First thing I tell them that in 1986, I was sentenced to nine years in prison. That's always my opening speech to these kids in, in, in prisons and in schools. So they know where I'm coming from. So, yeah, and, and you try to share that view of how you've managed to extract yourself out of that and hopefully if you can leave a little bit of imprint on, on them it's job done i guess you've been doing that for quite a long time now so have you seen any success stories any kids that you've talked to that oh yeah seen? loads absolutely loads. listen the best thing is every year i get dissertations i get at least 10 dissertations from skin or doing their future paper on the Levi root story <laughs> that that's one of the most enjoyable thing i can get because these kids are basing their future on my story, you know, and it's the most amazing thing. I said, the school visits, uh, you know, being invited to the Oxford debate twice, you know, when the people that tell me, they said, not even Mandela in the Mandela does it twice. Clinton has never done it twice, you know, but yet someone like me is coming and, and, and done it twice. So I, I enjoy it immensely, but I, I know that it's doing something for, you know, for kids because I, I see how they feel when I go into school and, and I go to a school and I see a packed assembly as I was a couple of days ago and, and all the kids know about the song. They know about the sauce. They know about Levi Root's story. And it's just brilliant to see that it's still helping kids now, not just people eating it and enjoying a food, but the story is inspiring people. And it's not much many brands as an inspirational story that goes. And the product's good as well, but the story is really inspirational. Do you feel a responsibility to be inspirational? No, I don't, because I, <laughs> the best thing is that I'm always me. I don't have to put I don't have to put it on. I think when you when you say inspire, if if you think of the word, it is something that you have to put on to go and inspire somebody. When I'm going to a school or a prison, I don't feel like I'm going to, I'm going as me. And and that's why I say to everybody, it's easier when you're you, because you don't have to pretend in any way. So whatever you get. I never write a speech or anything like that, however long I'm speaking for. Whatever comes out of my mouth, that's what you get. And I thank God so far, every time I open my mouth and say something, the public seems to like it. And that's just by being myself. So yeah, I don't think I'm inspirational at all, but I'm open what I'm saying and because of my deeds, it can inspire other people. It, it is inspirational. I guess it is that authenticity. What does success look like to you? I think success is always about legacy is what people say about you. It's not what it looks like to you at, at all. Because success is not about the money only. It's about what you stand for. And as I said, with my school visits and keep telling this Levi Root story, that's the most powerful thing I have is my story. It's not the business or what the sales has been done and, or, you know, whatever happens. It is what I can, you know, what the story means to people. If you can take this story on and say, if you can focus like Levi Roots, then you can have a chance to be able to do your business as well. That's what it looks like. So it's, it's the legacy, whatever it is. When I hang my guitar up and, 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 and say I'm not going to do this anymore, what is the impact? that reggae reggae sauce is left on, on, on the community. And I'm hoping that it will leave a massive impact on Caribbean food because it's still the most distributed Caribbean product in the whole country. Meaning that wherever you go in this United Kingdom, whether it's Ireland, Scotland, Wales, or wherever you, you will see a Levi Every product. cupboard has, yeah, a, has a Levi Roots yeah. product. In it. So yeah, I, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic There's probably one be in, in this, in yeah, this yeah. area. Yeah. <laughs> what does happiness look like? With my son, Christopher, now, 
it's the it's the only time I'm I'm happy is is over the past twelve twelve years since I met Martina, and and we started a family together. It's, it's the happiest I've I've ever been. In between that, I've lost my mom, and that was my my solar plex, my my center point for everything. But I think having Christopher and Martina has helped me to get over moments like that. And if you have someone or a purpose that helps you in that situation, then that is the greatest relationship that you can have. Because losing your mom, who, who you love, and and you have somebody who's there with you. I remember when she died a cup twenty twenty. I, I got up in the in the night crying. And if I was on my own, then I was for, as I was for many many years. I don't think I probably would have come back. But Martin and Christopher was there with me as a family then. To, what do you mean you wouldn't have come back? Well, if the, I, I, my mom was everything to me. You know, when I lost my grandma, I, I thought that, well, I'm not going to lose it because I've got this other person who was now dealing with me like how my grandma was when I was dead. And, and, then, and then when she went, I, 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 I don't know where I would have ended up if Christopher and Martin wasn't there. Um, yeah, so I, I see them as my, my saviour, really. And my happiest, the happiest that I am is now, is at this particular moment. You mentioned... Um hanging your guitar up. When's that going to happen? Have you got any intention? We're going to see a 100-year-old Levi Roots inspiring people still. Well, you know, people always ask me, you know, what's the inspiration? Is it the food, you know, or whatever? Is it the sauce or is it the music? Or is it as a musician, as a music man, as a, as a sound man? Do you see yourself more as a musician than a businessman? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the music is what inspired you know, me as the the, the, the the chef and everything else that, that I do. But the music is first, you know. Pick up my guitar and I said, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be only 10 minutes. It's an hour and 10 minutes. And that's inspiration. Did you teach yourself? I did. My mom brought me the guitar when I was in prison. I was doing my nine. I'd never played. She knew I, I needed something to focus on instead of, you know, moping about I'm innocent and all that kind of stuff. She paid 500 pounds for the guitar that I still have. In Exchange and Martin Brixton, it's a quite famous secondhand shop, used to be in Colabo Lane. And I think I was in my first year of my sentence. She brought the guitar. She brought it to the prison without even checking that you could have a guitar in your cell, which nobody couldn't. And she gave that prison governor some words. <laughs> Her son needs it. I was the only one that had a guitar in my cell. Did that not make you some sort of target? Well, because I started the band and I started to perform straight away. Yeah, so instantly people saw a purpose for me there and I was making people feel good. And so, so I got the support of the prisoners and then the, the, the prison officers started to give me the support. She brought the guitar, 500 pounds, and I think it was 69 That's pence. expensive guitar. Absolutely. And in back then, 500 pounds to my mom was a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of money. And she, with the guitar, she brought a Beatles book of songs that showed you, it had all the Beatles hits on there, but it showed you where to put your fingers on the guitar. It was like a self-taught book about to play Beatles songs. And the first song that I learned was Hey Jude, as it's quite easy to learn. <laughs> and, uh, boom, 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 boom. And, I, and I learned to play. And, and yeah, and I learned to play from that same book, Beatles songs book, and the guitar which my mom brought. And it's the same guitar that I took on the Jaggins then, and I wrote the reggae reggae sauce song on the same guitar. There's meaning in that. <laughs> yeah. So talking about the future, you've written a musical. You touched on it earlier on with your friend Frank. Yeah. And, and it was, um, you worked with Alex Wheatle. 
Yeah, Alex, yeah, amazing. Um, yeah. Who was also, um, I saw, he was involved in the Brixton riots as well. He was, um, yeah, he was, yeah. Was he imprisoned as well, I think so? He was, yeah. So yeah. Um, how did that relationship come about? How in, like how, how has this all come come? Well, I, I, was in, I was in my shower in, in Wales, again, to the Carmarthenshire. I love going to the shires. So yeah, I, I, I was on holiday in, in Carmarthenshire a couple of years ago. I'm in shower and thinking that I need, I need a new challenge. You know, what can I merge together now? Because I thought that, well, I've merged music and food to create the reggae reggae. So two of my inspirational things, music and food. And now I was in the shower and thinking, oh, can I merge now? And I thought, oh, yeah, I think I can merge sound system culture and, and stage and stage acting together. Because that's never been done. Because I thought if there was a sound system play or stage play, I would have gone and see it because sound system is my life. But I thought nobody has ever put sound system on the stage you know, the characters and the life of sound system players. So I wanted to do that. So I came out of the show, I picked up the pen. I'd never written, you know, a play or anything in my life, but I thought that I can... Are you a fan of musicals? I am a fan of musicals. West Side Story. West Side Story. West Side Story. For a lot of people. And I based the story around that. I was going to ask, and it's quite Shakespearean as well. Yeah, it's good. Again, with the Shakespeare that Theresa Mm -hmm. gave me, I wanted to write something was about Romeo and Juliet, the, the passion of Romeo and Juliet and the drama, but with the music and the dance of West Side Story but I didn't want to tell that story I wanted to see it through the eyes of a sound system man and, and write about the classics but see it through the eyes of a, of a sound system clash so I got out of the shower and I took up a pen and I started to write and before I knew it I'd written a bloody play I surprised myself <laughs> you know the old concept and everything like that but I just thought I needed somebody to bring this sort of concept which I've written alive and then I thought oh I know who I can do it so I had a, I've got a radio show that I do every Thursday in Colorful Radio and I invited Alex Weekle onto the show to have a chat and when after the show I said to him that look I've, I've, I've written this you know this stage play that I'd love you to take a look at and, and see if you can put bring it to life for me I knew Alex said Alex was a fan of mine's um, when I was on Sir Cox and Sound back in the day, because a bit younger than me, Alex. So I knew that he had a sound system background. He also had a shant sound as well. But now he's one of our most famous black writers in the country. So I thought, perfect, you know. He was a musician. Yeah, he's done music, he's done yeah. sound system. He's, he's written about 40 books yeah. so far, you know, as long as you're around. So I, I sent Alex this script um, that I'd written and asked him to put to bring it to life for me. And he was he was the perfect person. And boom, the next thing I know, we had this fantastic script. Every time I showed it to somebody, everybody's like, wow, Levi, this is amazing. You know, people from the young Vic, the old Vic, every, everybody wants it all of a sudden. Um, and I decided that I wanted to keep it for myself. I, I didn't want to lend it out in that kind of way. I wanted to do it myself. And before I knew it, I had um, Adrian... Grant, you know, on board, you know, producer of Michael Jackson's thriller. When I was in the West End for it seemed like a thousand years. Yeah. Um, and then I had them board next, you know, Rachel, you know, fantastic American director. He's come on board and wants to direct Sound Clash. And Jade Akit, you know, choreographer, one of the most amazing choreographer that there is, you know, come on board. And, and everything just seems to come together. Everybody just loves the idea of an urban story about love, about two characters falling in love, but it's around sound system and lyrical battles and, and dance battles and that sort of stuff like that. So yeah, and fant- and next thing we know, Fringe came along and says that, oh, Levi, we'll give you the second biggest theatre in... How did that happen? Did they just hear, so somebody there heard that you yeah, created a musical? Yeah, heard about this new concept, yeah. And here's, a month, here's a month. Yeah, they were yeah. looking for something new for, 
for, for Fringe, yeah. Next thing I knew that we got actors and dancers and everybody. On board. Have you been to the Fringe before? No. No, so this is going to be your first time? My first time, my very first time. And, and we're going to inspire people with this new concept. Who amazing. are the actors? Well, we, we chosen like very young actors because that's something else that I wanted to do. I wanted not to choose anybody with names because I wanted to give this back to young people from students and university and that were doing their first. So we put out the call out there for young people, first timers um, to be in. So there, there's no one of named winning it, but they're all young, enthusiastic. With music as a background. With music as a background, yeah. Some of them sing and they rap. Because they had to be able to sing and rap to be able to be within within the whole thing. So we got a fantastic crew. And with Jade as the choreographer. Oh, man. The rehearsals has been amazing. What is your hope for it? To tour it around the world. I think sound system is the reasons why we have rap music, why we have hip-hop. Why we have grime, drum and bass, jungle, all of the current music that we listen to now as favorite music started. started in sound systems. You know, that's where it started from. So for me, it would be brilliant to take this culture that's never been celebrated on the stage ever and take it and show people that it's not just about the music, but this is about the characters of these sound people. You know, they fall in love too and they have their differences and that and I, I want to give them. So I'd love to tour it, you know, around the Royal America where sound system is massive. Japan, sound system is absolutely big than Africa and Australia and everywhere. Sound system is, and then you got all these people like David Ruddick and David Goethe, Fat Boy Slim, and I could reel off, a, you know, names that have got big out of sound system and DJing, you know, that started in this fantastic Jamaican culture. I have no doubt it's going to be successful. Are you selling tickets now? Yeah. Um, if somebody wanted to buy tickets for the Fringe, where would they, where would they go? Yeah, it's, they can go onto the website. It's www.soundclashshow.com. So that's going to keep you busy for the next few years, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah, this is going to be going to absolutely fly and it tours and you know, everybody's going to see it. And God, that's been a lot of fun. <laughs> so... If anybody wants to follow you, where can they follow you? Well, I'm, I'm on, on most of the social media, um, but I, I, I do my own. I, I do have my official page, which is Levi Roots Official on, on Instagram. But um, Levi Roots Music is, is my own that I answer personally to. So yeah, at Levi Roots Music on Instagram. You still release music? Twitter. I do. Um, not, not at the moment, because right now I'm doing SoundClash. So busy. With- <laughs> yeah, as well as I'm doing the Levi Roots movie as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, the Levi so I know you, you touched on it earlier on. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to ask because I know how I know how these things sometimes get stuck in a limbo. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and you wait for the right people and the right time. So what's happening with that? Yeah, which is it's absolutely fantastic. We've just actually um, found our director, which is it took us a long time to be able to to get the script right and and get the director on board. Um, it's myself and Nick Moorcroft, mm-hmm. um, Nick Moorcroft, and, and and a few a couple others do some rewrites. In, in. But Nick Moorcroft, who did Finding Your Feet, Fisherman's Friend, and some of the biggest movies that made in this country over the past ten years are, are the same producers that are producing my movie. So it's it's, it's fantastic to see that you know the stories going to be told you know on film so i'd be able to hopefully be inspire people all over again like it did in 2007 when it came on but now you know for those kids that were seeing it for the first time i'm hoping that a next set of young kids you know 12 13 14 will see the movie and we'll be able to say that well if levi Rus can do it then surely we can do it as well
it's a way to reach a huge audience. Yeah, another generation. And a recurring audience. And ex exactly as you say, you know, a younger audience. And then, and it just exists there then. And in perpetuity, you can just inspire younger and younger people. That's really exciting as well. So it sounds like you've got enough on your plate. You've got a 10-year-old, you've got your other children, you've got the business, you've got um, Sound Clash, you've got the movie. Do you ever stop? No, because I'm enjoying it, you know, and I think that's the beautiful thing is that when you're doing things that you love to do, that you're inspired by, you know, they all saying, do a job that you're inspired by and never feel like working a day in your life. You know, I go out and I, I go to work and I have my guitar with me, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I, I be who I am, you know, I don't have to think I'm some kind of somebody else or what have you. So that makes me happy. And uh, if that was to change, that's when I feel like I, I want to I wanna put this down and, and, and cool out. I think a lot of people don't know how to get out of working to make money. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's, you touched on earlier on that spiral of you know, people are just like, okay, well, this is my lot. This is all I've got. Yeah. This is all I can do. It's not. And it's absolutely not. Yeah, you just got to have the dream and then have the purpose to want to make that change. And be willing to make choices like you did to be yourself. Yeah. And different. Like yeah. your friends that said, don't walk up those stairs with that guitar. You said, no, I'm going to do it. And here we are sat 14 years later, all these successes, all the things to come. It's, it's a phenomenal story, Levi. And I'm just incredibly grateful that you made the time for me. Thank so thank you very much. No problem. Cheers. And there we have Levi Roots. On the starting line, the first episode of the Starting Line podcast. Not a bad way to start, eh? Levi. <laughs> arrived where we were recording this interview, dripping with gold, wearing a beautiful three-piece suit, looking every inch the successful entrepreneur. And it was a hot day, I'm not going to lie. I was there in a t-shirt and shorts. If anybody knows me, that is, is t-shirt and shorts or t-shirt and jeans. Very rarely am I in, in any sort of formal wear. You know, I, I was quick to tell him, I was like, you've made me look terrible here, Levi. You know, he's, he was very, very short, very, very kind. Absolutely loved meeting him. Just, I thought, a fantastic interview. Uh, so thank you, Levi. You can follow Levi on Twitter at Levi Roots Music, on Instagram at official underscore Levi underscore Roots. And you can follow his new show, Soundclash. That's at Soundclash Show. Find out more about Soundclash at soundclashshow.com, where you can buy tickets from now until the 28th of August as it makes its world premiere at the Edinburgh Fringe. Good luck to Levi with that. I wish him every, every bit of success. And I've got no doubt it's going to be super successful. Thank you for listening. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. If you haven't already, click subscribe. It'll make sure that it downloads every episode as they come out. I've got a great series for you. I'm not going to lie. We've got some fantastic guests, just incredible conversations, such amazing people. So um, you, you won't want to miss it. If you have enjoyed it, we really, really appreciate every podcast assess this. Again, my first episode, so I'm not going to miss the opportunity to do so here either. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. It really does help us get more listeners. And basically, if we get more ears on the fantastic interviews we've got lined up, well, hopefully that's no bad thing. You can also support us by following us on social media. Again, that's at Starting Line Show on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can skip all that. And do you know what? You can go out and you can tell your friends that you've listened to this and enjoyed it. You can... As I say, find out more about me and the podcast at startinglinepod.com. You can email us, hello at startinglinepod.com. Guest suggestions with thoughts, your feedback, nice things, please. Um, you can, um, or just if you want to say hi, you know, that's what it's for. Hello at, say hello. But thank you very, very much again for listening. 
Thank you, Levi. This is something I've wanted to do for, I want to say 10 years. I've got notes from 2012, 2013, where I love Inside the Actors Studio with James Lipton. I loved Parkinson. I love good interviews, getting to the heart of why people are who they are. And I wanted to do this for so long and put it off and put it off. And in fact, it was a conversation with, you might remember him as Comedy Dave. Um, he was the producer on Chris Moyle's show on Radio One. I've been introduced to him and I was chatting about doing this and he said, so why haven't you done it? And I said, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, there aren't there too many podcasts? Aren't there too many straight white guys doing podcasts in their 30s? Aren't there too many of those? And he said, do you know what, Rich? Do you ever walk into a library and think, that's it, we're done. We've got every book we need. Every single book that needs to be written has already been written. Well, no, of course not. It's all about quality. It's about the guests. It's about the interviews. It's about all of these aspects. And I needed to stop putting a stop on myself, I think. And I just appreciate you coming along with me on this. It's incredibly exciting. I don't know where this ends. I don't know where this leads. I know that I've had so much fun recording this first series and we've recorded most of what I imagine will be the first series by the time you listen to this. And we're going to be releasing one a week. And I'm just so excited, honestly. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hugely appreciate you getting in touch, starting my show. Thank you.